Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Roberta Tian to our show. Dr. Tian is the Associate Provost Emeritus at Ferris State University in Big Rapids, Michigan. Hi, Robbie. I'm so glad that we have you on the show today. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Can you talk about Ferris State University and why students select your institution? I absolutely can, but before I tell you why I think they select Ferris, and there are many reasons, I'd like to give you a little background because we really are very distinctive in the nation as well as in the state. And that first reason I believe is that our founder was a man by the name of Woodbridge Ferris. And he was a Michigan governor and he was a US Senator back in the early 1900s. And he established the school as the Ferris Industrial School in 1894, so we're about 136 years old, which makes us among the older institutions in Michigan as well. And Ferris was established as an opportunity institution. And if you were to interview people on our campus today, um, people will use that word. Uh, It happens to be one of our values, but that is something that people um, really cherish about what Ferris represents. And it all stems from these early teachings of Woodbridge Ferris. And I did include today a couple of um, quotations because I think they set the stage for what the university became. And if you were to go to the Ferris website, you'll find a whole, um, a, a number of pages of his sayings that really permeate the campus. So this one is one. He writes, my plea in Michigan, and it will be my plea to the last breath I draw. And the last word I speak is education for all children, all men and all women of Michigan, all the people in all our states, all the time. That particular quotation is just outside the president's office and you'll find it at many places around the university. And it really influences, I think, how we think about ourselves in that institution because you can't go far on the campus without seeing it. And what I think is really important to remember about that saying is that this is the early 1900s. Women and African-Americans and Hispanics we're not populating our uh, university campuses. Now, admittedly at that time, this was an industrial school and subsequently became a university. But he really set the stage, I think, for opportunity. And he also set the stage for equity. And the other thing, before I answer the real question, which is why do they pick it today? Because many students won't know this history and maybe won't even care about the history. But for me and for many at the university, including our president, who's eloquent in this topic, is it, really defines who we are and who we intend to be. So Ferris in the early 1900s, as early as 1910, as far as we can tell, enrolled a significant proportion of African-American students from the Hampton Institute in New York. And at this minute, I don't know the details of that um, connection, how that came to be, But what I know that you and your listeners will know is that not very many African-Americans were attending quote unquote colleges in the early 1900s. And Ferris is very proud of that history. And in fact, there's a recent book that I've bought but have not yet had time to uh, read by our chief diversity officer, the vice president for diversity and inclusion. Um, I think it was, is called Haste to Rise. And I've got to get to that. It's a, It's a broad-based reading assignment on the campus for those who have engaged, and I I need to catch up on that. But it tells the story of Ferris's early involvement in equity and access for all Americans. So now let me get to your real question. Why do people pick Ferris today? Because the history is probably not what they know. Um, Prominent among our programs, I believe, is the College of Pharmacy and it is highly distinguished. Additionally, 
students are attracted by our Michigan College of Optometry, which is the only college of optometry in the state of Michigan. Now, obviously, those are both doctoral level programs, as is the doctorate in community college leadership that we'll talk about soon. But Ferris also is highly distinguished by its um, many really distinctive undergraduate programs. Let me mention a few of them, starting with the College of Engineering Technology. We have, or at least had, I haven't looked at it in the last couple of years, the only baccalaureate degree in HVACR, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, and refrigeration. Um, to my knowledge, there have not been others that come in and as a, or that have come into being. As a consequence, we draw students truly internationally into that program. Another uh, distinctive program in that area is a bachelor's degree in welding engineering technology. While there are a few others of those, they're really small, there are small numbers of them. Uh, we have plastics and rubber manufacturing technology. And so those are examples of some really very distinctive um, industrial related programs that are well suited to Michigan's history in automotive uh, manufacturing. So until at least the last couple of years, and I haven't checked that data recently, but we, Ferris, had either the first largest or the second largest College of Engineering Technology in the country. So many students come to our campus um, to pursue one of those distinctive technology programs. The College of Health Professions also has a number of programs I, that are attractive, dental hygiene at the baccalaureate level. Oh. Few of them are at that level. Um, of course, nursing programs, there's a doctor of nursing practice, um, there's sonography, respiratory therapy, nuclear medicine, respiratory, um, on and on and on. So a big array of health profession programs. I would say that those are probably a little less distinctive than some that you'll find in our technology area. And in the College of Business, the third large college at the university, uh, undergraduate college, um, two that people encounter are the professional golf management program where you have to have a particular handicap to even be admitted to the program. It was the first professional golf management program associated with PGA in the country. Now, since many others have added programs, but Ferris's is well recognized as being the best established, longest running and highly regarded. Actually, I have an anecdote that I'd love to share on this one. Like most colleges, um, Ferris does a lot of uh, fundraising to support its various functions. And one of those events has lots of gifts that you can um, bid on. And at one of those events, I bid on a golf outing for two or four, I forget the number now, it was several years ago at the Broadmoor. Now I had never been at the Broadmoor in Colorado, but I certainly knew the name. And so I bid on this thing and got it for really a very reasonable price, far less than what I would have paid if I'd actually gone there to pay for it. And obviously those gifts are all donated to the university for this fundraising endeavor. So a few months passed by and I've lined up some friends to go golfing at the Broadmoor and we're pretty excited. And I called to make our golf arrangements. And because I got this thing at Ferris, I said to the golf shop that I was talking with or the individual, I said, well, someone there must be from Ferris because this is where I got this golf package. And what he said to me was, ma'am, everyone here is from Ferris. So, so I love to tell that story because I, I doubt that you can go to any golf course of name in this country and not find that there are some Ferris graduates there. Wow. Um, professional tennis management is another. Um, most um, prestigious tennis clubs in the country, including uh, in Washington, D.C., are um, managed and have pros who are products of the Ferris State University Professional Tennis Management Program. And then, of course, in business, there are all the usual things of accounting and marketing and um, increasingly now, I hadn't thought about that as I was making my notes, but increasingly the um, information security and intelligence 
is drawing a larger number of people in and the program has enjoyed great distinction. So those are the types of programs that I think bring people into Ferris. Certainly the opportunity mission has brought people into Ferris. We don't have high grade point averages. We don't expect exquisite SAT or ACT test scores. We do have, unlike some universities, support for students whose um, um, preparation for college may be more limited. Um, but because we've always been an opportunity school and committed to assuring that that opportunity pays dividends, um, we have resources in place to help people be successful. Uh, the other thing that I think brings people to Ferris is the number of student organizations. The last time I recall a number, it was something like 185 different student groups. Wow. And they, they run the gamut. There is the robotics club and there is the formula two race car building club and there is the marketing club and lots of them associated with the majors. And then there are a whole lot of recreational ones like a soccer club and a variety of other things where we don't have competitive athletics, um, but they engage in their recreational or athletic pursuits in a club way. Um, there are also many identity groups like LGBTQ, um, African-American women, and, and that's not the exact name of it. Um, it has a, a more powerful name than that, but they are a very active group on the campus and are highly supportive of each other, which contributes to their success and their retention. Um, there are Latino groups and on and on and on. So lots of identity groups and you name it. I mean, how, how do you get 185 plus student organizations on a campus? Right. And that wouldn't happen in a community college generally because we are typically commuter institutions. But Ferris in contrast is primarily a residential institution for its undergraduates. So those are uh, some of the reasons. And then the final one I, I jotted down as why I think, why I believe that people select Ferris Ferris has always made a commitment to maintaining a full-time faculty. They are for the most part tenured and tenure track. Mm -hmm. And many community colleges um, have right. by necessity had to uh, um, utilize more adjuncts. And I, I think that can be a very good thing, but it can also be a shortcoming in other settings. And Ferris has a high proportion of full-time faculty. So students who come to Ferris as undergraduates, the likelihood that they will have a full-time tenured or tenure track faculty member is very, very high. Um, it's generally in the 80, 85% range. And so students will be taught by full-time faculty. And of course, you know, our faculty are very proud of that as is our president and, and the other leadership. So those are why I think people pick Ferris. I've really emphasized the opportunity and I believe that to be a great strength of the university, but there is also a very large and very distinctive um, honors college. And very often the students who are attracted to it are people who are wanting to get into optometry and pharmacy. And there is an advantage if they come to Ferris as an undergraduate to get access into those uh, doctoral highly competitive programs. So there's another, and it, it creates a great balance on our campus because we have lots and lots of really uh, premier academic students and lots and lots of students who maybe didn't initially even see themselves in college. Yeah. Well, a, a colleague of mine is completing his doctorate in community college leadership from Ferris. Can you talk about the program and the importance of academic leadership pathways for future community college leaders? I can. Um, first of all, that program is one that I have been uh, tightly involved with since the beginning, but it was not my idea. That idea came from a former president of the university, and his name was um, Bob or Robert Awiglaben. And uh, regrettably, he just passed away in the last year as a very senior person, but he'd been the president of Ferris as well as a community college. And um, he believed that Ferris was well positioned because of the fact that we also offer associate degrees along with bachelor's, master's and, and doctorates. And he convinced our president over a couple of years, maybe more, um, that this would be a good thing for Ferris to do. He wasn't intending to do it. He just thought Ferris should do it. And so I um, fortunately had had some leadership, 
leadership experience in the community college. And um, I was really intrigued by this idea. And so I really volunteered to become involved because of my prior community college experience. And by the way, I should say that I'm also a graduate of a community college. And mm -hmm. I always introduce myself as a proud graduate of a community college because I would not be where I am today had it not been for that community college. And that's true for many who attend the community college. And so I was obviously intrigued about this new program. And I've always been quite interested in leadership. I have a doctorate in higher adult and lifelong education, which is about higher education leadership. I've been a longtime administrator, both at the community college before I left there and went to Ferris. And so I thought I'm a natural for this. Now I, I did have to let them know that a few times <laughs> that I'm a natural for this. And um, so as the program was being rolled out, I did get the opportunity to become its director very early. I wasn't the first director, but I was very, very early within the first few months because a faculty member who had taken it on to help us get through the internal challenges of where does the curriculum come from, um, decided this wasn't what he wanted to do. So that opened the door for me to do it. And I've been involved ever since. And I currently teach uh, the leadership course along with the practicum course. So the program was designed to be entirely different uh, from many other programs. We intended for students to complete, go back to the opportunity orientation of Ferris. And if we bring them in, we want to send them out with that degree. So we put in a lot of supports, including what I think is probably the most important support of all is our dissertation director who works with the students from the very first semester through the completion of that dissertation. And as necessary, we'll um, bug them to get back on track to get that done. And you probably know that community, I'm sorry, that doctoral completion is only at about 50% because many students don't ever finish the dissertation. And that's because very few institutions have been wise enough, frankly, to figure out that you have to build in supports and touch points and benchmarks and a number of other things. And so our director of that um, effort, Dr. Sandy Balkama, a longtime faculty member at the university, that, that's been vital to our success. So we do enjoy great success. So, um, our success, success, I think, comes from a number of standpoints. One, it comes from the fact that we do build in that support. It comes from the fact that we are very practitioner-oriented. And so while theories do undergird most of what we do, we are really about practice. And our faculty are people who are leaders in the field. Almost all of our faculty are either current or recent high-level college administrators. And our students love that. So when we survey them about what's best about the program, and by the way, we surveyed them all the time. Um, first, love is their cohort. And so the cohort model is clearly what makes us um, successful. And then a close second is their practitioner faculty. And, um, I think they recognize, and, I, and I'm confident actually that they do because we do survey them all the time and talk with them all the time, that we are constantly there to support their success. So being committed to continuous improvement through that survey work, being very practitioner focused, being very supportive, all of those I think have made us really successful. And I'd like to actually share a few statistics with you. Uh, the program began in 2010. And so yeah, in this- yeah, in this current year, we have been uh, celebrating the 10th anniversary. Now, that's a young program in comparison to our university and other places, but it's not so young in community college leadership degrees, and lots of them don't survive 10 years. I could point to a couple right now, and we have survived, and actually, we've thrived, and so at this moment, we have more than 200 graduates. We have another 122 people who are currently enrolled. Our student, within another year and a half, we will have 300 graduates in the field. Almost all of them are full-time in community colleges right now. And the last time we did an update, our students are in 
or grads are in 26 states, 103 colleges that serve 1.6 million students. And so the message we're conveying in our 10th anniversary year is we're having an impact, a really big impact. And I think we are developing a different kind of leader. And we'll talk more about leadership factors uh, soon. But I believe leadership needs to be very different today. And I believe that a program like ours doesn't have to be ours and doesn't even have to be for credit that really focuses on the functions of leadership and the values of leadership is what we need for a pathway to leadership in our colleges. So when we talk about leadership, what advice can you give to individuals wanting to move into academic leadership? Well, um, the very first thing I would say is that they should recognize that leadership takes a different skill set. Very often, the people who are interested in moving into leadership may presently be in a faculty role. And having been faculty myself, I can tell you that the job of the faculty member that can be quite autonomous and independent um, is really very different from the role of a leader who has to bring others along and collaborate on just about everything you want to get done. So first thing is recognize that it is a different skill set. And to that end, it's a skill set that you really can develop and will need to develop if you're going to be successful. And there are lots of ways to do that. Um, you can certainly read lots. There's lots of good advice out there. You can talk to lots of people. You can observe what others do and what you like about what you see in what they do. And so there are lots of ways to do that. And I'll talk more later probably, but I'll emphasize here that I really think um, the most important attribute, um, or maybe not the most, an important attribute, attribute of leaders is that they're learners first, that they are always committed to their own learning because this game is changing and the people we're playing the game with is changing and um, the disruption has probably never been more prominent. And so I think that leaders for today need to be learners. And to be honest, from my observation, not all leaders have been great learners over the years. And that really is demanded. So um, my students will probably tell you that I share advice whether they want it or not. And so another piece <laughs> of advice would be, you need to be open to criticism. And not only do you need to be open to it, and usually it's intended in good faith and meant to be constructive. Although if it feels hurtful, then it may not feel constructive. But people have to be open to hearing how they're in perceived because sometimes what we think we're conveying is not at all what the other person sees. And so it's really important to seek feedback all the time. So I am a great believer in 360 degree feedback in the right way. I've seen it misused a lot, but um, if done right, I think gathering feedback, not only from your superiors, but your um, peers, and those who report to you or collaborate with you on projects is really vitally important. So people have to be seeking that input on a regular basis and to take it seriously and consider whether it has meaning for them and whether it's something they can do differently. The other thing I would share is that I have known people over the years who are destined to want to be a president or a vice president or a dean, or whatever it might be. And so my other advice would be, think about why you wanna do this. Because sometimes when people have that ambition, it's because they want the power, the prestige, or they think that they can tell people what to do. And trust me, you cannot. The higher up you go in the organization, probably the less power you have to tell people what to do. And um, so I think people need to re really reevaluate their own values and what their rationale would be. And there is a community college president that I, I won't name since I didn't ask her about quoting her, but highly regarded uh, national person outside the state of Michigan, who uh, frequently in different conversations I've had with her has said something like, beware the person who wants to become a president. Because if that's what they're expressing, uh, rather than here's how I wanna help my college, 
here's how I want to help these students, here's what I want to do for this community, uh, then that may be the wrong person for the job. If, if the goal is being a president, that may not be the loftiest goal that one could come to the work with. And so our ideal would be that they're coming to it with a desire to make things better. And most of the leaders I know are eager to do that, but there are lots of exceptions to that. Um, another piece of advice would be, you're gonna have to work above and beyond. You don't have the flexibility that um, even in the faculty ranks, I mean, many faculty, including myself, have said, did I make a good decision here by leaving that faculty role where I really only was obligated to be in that classroom for 15, 16 hours a week? And then um, I could do the rest of my work independently in different ways. Um, you have a lot of autonomy as a faculty member that you don't enjoy as an administrator. So you need to be prepared for that. And the successful administrators I know are not, um, they're not nine to fivers. They are people who are really accessible to their people um, all of the time, seven days a week, practically around the clock if, if the situation demands it. And that's really different for people who have not been in leadership roles before. But I want to I want to uh, couch that one with I, I do think that that's an unhealthy work environment. And I think that younger leaders and I admire their efforts have got it together better, which is they understand the importance of balance between their personal lives and their work lives. And many of them that I observe really work a whole lot smarter than some of us earlier leaders did. And I think that's a great thing because I am more than ever probably convinced that if you aren't okay, meaning healthy and having some balance in your life and time for your friends and time for your family and things not in chaos, if you're not okay, you really can't be okay for your people. And you also set a really bad pattern if work is 24 seven. So I do think that that dynamic about what does work look like is changing. And certainly um, I, I won't go into the pandemic discussion today, but certainly that fact that many of us have been working almost exclusively from home has disrupted the balance between personal and work lives. Yeah, and the time, the time ahead uh, will be one for clarifying how do we get this back into balance? Because in my opinion, we'll probably never go back to being in the office from eight to five or whatever those hours happen to be for different individuals. And then the last piece of advice I would offer is I think you need to be really authentic. And so one of the readings that I always incorporate into the leadership course is on authentic leadership. And I don't have a particular favorite author on that. I use different things, but in general, I have a deep belief that you need to be authentic. And a couple of people whose work I do admire um, or have over the years is part Palmer has written a number of books and he speaks frequently. And among the things he says that really resonates with me is you teach who you are. You teach who you are. So I can say whatever I want to say and I can do whatever I want to do, but people are going to see who I really am. And that's what I'm really teaching them is who I am. And so that kind of guides my thinking, even though I haven't picked up one of my Parker Palmer books for several years that resonates with me is who I am showing them that I am is who I really am. And I need to always be authentic. And I do often describe myself as real Robbie, meaning what you see is what you get. That's who I am. And some of you are really going to like me and some of you won't like me at all. And I guess that's okay because it is who I am. And I'll try to be considerate and respectful of what your interests are, but I am who I am and I try to be um, as fair as I can be. And another saying along those same lines that I often use with um, students is, if it's reported by Ralph Waldo Emerson and it is, what you do speaks so loudly that I cannot hear what you say. 
And so I think I sort of live that way. And I certainly remind our students of that is who you are, is who you bring to the job every day. And that's who you need to remain. You can't be somebody different. You can behave differently and you can listen and you can communicate and you can try to understand and you need to adapt, but you can never be somebody different from who you are. Those are, those are excellent points. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to switch topics on you since, since what was amazing when I was looking at your bio is you have, you wear a lot of hats, <laughs> of course. <laughs> and of course, one of the hats is as someone who has done over 70 site visits as a peer reviewer and also a team chair with the Higher Learning Commission. Can you talk a little bit about your insights on assessment and accreditation and strategic planning? I absolutely can. And before I do that, um, I would certainly advise anybody who wants to really learn. Uh, and you can see that's a theme in my life. I love to learn. And it's been the best learning experience of my life. I began this work back in 1989 at the recommendation of a good friend who was a dean in a downstate school. And it's been the best professional development of my career. Many of my best personal friends are now people that I've worked with in the Higher Learning Commission, and I do a lot of work with them in various contexts. And so my best professional network really has come from that. So I'm going to start first with the accreditation part. Because, you know, I've devoted a lot of time and a lot of years to this, you know, I'm invested in it. And the reason I'm invested in it is... I really think that we who know our business, I, I consider myself a higher education professional. And I think I know better than people who are not higher education professionals about how colleges could and should work. And so I believe deeply in this idea of peer review, which is what accrediting bodies are. And so well, I think we can learn a lot from K-12 educators, and I think we can learn a lot from employers, and I think we can learn a lot from a variety of different individuals. Um, I really think that the people who are best qualified to evaluate higher education are people who know higher education. So that's a part of why I'm really invested in it. Another part of why I'm really invested in it, um, I hope that it will come through that I really am committed to excellence, and uh, I think we're a long way from it in a lot of places, and I'm going to will I keep working toward our getting there, and I think that accreditation is one of the ways in which we get there. Now, I know that that's a minority view. I think a lot of people resist accreditation because they think it's this external inspection, and they get nervous about it, and they don't like being criticized. But I really think benchmarking yourself with external entities is a good thing to do. Um, I know it can feel threatening to a lot of institutions, but I would like to believe, and I do believe, that our institutions are actually better as a result of this process. Now, I know that many won't agree with that, but I think we give them good advice. I think we keep them honest because it's easy to get sloppy in some areas and all the above. But I will say there is a flip side to that, and then I'll go to the assessment and strategic planning. The flip side of it is, I think there are many who do interpret the standards of accreditors too narrowly. And so I think we could broaden that. And um, the example I would use is, there is an absolute presumption among accreditors that shared governance is a good thing. In general, I would agree that it is a good thing. But in specifics, I would say it is not always a good thing. Sometimes it's not very well understood. Sometimes it's not very well implemented. Sometimes it's misusing the right people in the wrong places or the wrong people in the right places and they don't bring the expertise. And you probably heard me already say in the introduction to this is I think you need to have expertise in an area if you're going to give guidance in an area. So I think there are lots of reasons why something like shared governance, and I just pulled that out as one example, uh, may not always be the best path in an institution. But I do think that most reviewers come in thinking that's the only path. And so I would like us to be a little broader in our thinking. And I think that over the years, accrediting bodies have tried to get more flexible. And because they are 
membership organizations, if we step forward more frequently and let them know what we want them to be for our organization, I, I think that they can continue to be highly vital. They're often criticized by the federal government. They're often criticized by the colleges. But my bottom line is I, I think it's valuable. So you mentioned also um, strategic planning and assessment. And I, of course, have opinions on those too. Um, strategic planning is the one I'll take next. Number one, almost every college I've ever visited and the colleges I've worked in can develop some pretty nice strategic plans. What they're usually not so good at is implementing those plans and having those plans guide their actions. And so if there is going to be a problem with strategic planning, it's likely to be that they really haven't even implemented the plan. Now, other times it's because it's top down. I've seen that a lot is the president and his or her council will develop this plan and nobody in the organization knows about the plan or understands the plan or had any commitment to the plan or even embraces the plan. And so it's not gonna happen because the only place where work gets done in colleges is at the lowest levels. So the faculty got to be involved, the staff have to be involved, every unit has to be involved. And if they're not, the plan's going nowhere. So um, I don't see that as the biggest problem facing institutions, they have bigger problems, but um, they could do better, I think, with strategic planning. And, and my advice would be is focusing on the critical few things that they really want to get done and putting adequate resources behind it. Because the challenge I have seen in many institutions, including where I've worked is, it's a great idea, but if you don't have resources to carry out that really good idea, um, it's a pipe dream. And you need to get realistic about what you can do and what you're willing to commit to doing. Let me talk last about assessment. And I leave that to last because if there is a place where I really have been personally disappointed in how well we've done, it truly is in the area of assessment. And there are a whole lot of reasons for that. One, um, most of the faculty who come into our institutions did not come through any kind of educational training. And so they don't always appreciate the fact that in any instructional design model, assessment is integral. Most of the faculty we hire in our institutions are discipline specialists. They are biologists. They are psychologists. They are nurses. They are not people who really understand instructional design right. or curriculum development. So that's one of the many problems. Um, many systems have not, not been designed to be sustainable, et cetera. So I am disappointed. Um, what you'll learn if you were to talk to people at the Higher Learning Commission is that assessment is the one area where most institutions have follow-up and I don't think it was so hard for us to get it done, but we certainly didn't get it done. And I think that that's one of the places where a resistance to thinking anew about our work um, is a part of it. And we'll talk about that some when we talk about where I see us going in the next few years. But I am one who believes that if we did better with assessment, we would be, be doing a lot better in helping students learn because we would know about who is learning what in what ways and we would share that information with other people and we would be um, willing to confront that some of what we're doing probably isn't working very well. You can walk by any classroom in many institutions um, and find that teaching looks just the way it did when you and I went to school. It has not changed sufficiently. Now, I do think we've been bumped off course with this recent set of events. And that could be a very good thing because in order to move toward change, you really need to unfreeze the old habits. And we have certainly unfrozen those old habits. Yeah. So I remain hopeful that assessment um, might still get better in our institutions. 
I guess I'm not going to, you know, count on it for sure while I'm still involved, but I, I, I really think it's essential to some of what we need to accomplish in our schools because our students learn differently and we have not accommodated that sufficiently to date. So, you know, I've sat on accreditation uh, teams when uh, accrediting bodies are coming in to, to, to do site visits and stuff. And I'm always amazed, first of all, how do, how do you solve the blame game? In other words, as things start being looked at, instead of trying to fix things, they, they try to fix blame on things. In other words, it, it gets confusing to me. So, so since you brought that up, if I was a new president and, and all this just unraveled in front of me as far as finger pointing and everything else, how do you, how do you kind of couch that back into having a, getting your team back on board with trying to, to fix the, the problem instead of fix blame? I think a lot of that is cultural. So you talk about a new president, probably the culture that existed is uh, well uh, established. And so if blame is a part of how that organization has um, responded to its challenges, then it'll be a challenge for that person. But here, my immediate thoughts are, one, you have to do a lot of listening, but I think you have to be clear about your expectations. What I've found in my teaching, not, and really in my leadership work as well, is people will rise to the expectations almost all of the time. People want to do their best work. It's rare when they don't. And so I think if you're real clear about your expectations, so a pretty new president could say, you know, it, it's entirely possible that any of these things really are the cause, but that's not where we're here to solve today. What we're here to solve today is we need to figure out what can we do to move us forward on this topic? What ideas do you have? And actually um, you smiled and, and I um, smile at the number of times I've heard people use the term when they come into your office with a problem, uh, uh, usually a staff person, but it could be a student or a community person, um, is that if you come in with that monkey, you're leaving the office with that monkey on your back, you're not leaving him on my back, which is you've got to come in with a solution. Don't come in and just leave me with a problem. What ideas do you have about the solution to that problem? And actually that goes to another thing we'll talk about a little bit later, and that is um, you have to empower your people to act is many of them see the best solutions. And the further away you are from the problem, the less likely you are the right person to solve the problem. That's a lot to think about. Those were some excellent points, Robbie. I, I enjoyed those Great. comments that you made. Um, how, how do you see community colleges evolving then over the next five to 10 years? And I do agree with you well, that- I actually, Oh, I'm sorry. I, I was gonna say, I do agree with you that-, no. that uh, pandemic, terrible, terrible things, but I am watching colleges and universities kind of maneuver a little bit better that they, they didn't have to in the past. That's actually kind of moving them a little bit forward in places they didn't know they were going to move toward. Absolutely. And in fact, I have said to several colleagues that I would not have predicted that we could be as agile as we were. I would not have predicted yeah. that based on my many years of a leadership experience. So I'm encouraged by that, very encouraged. Yeah. So I actually have a couple of scenarios. Number one, um, what I think they will do and what I'd like them to do are really kind of two different things. So I'm going to tell you what I think they'll do. I think that you're going to see them because of budgetary constraints that will only get worse in the coming years for a while. Um, they're going to try to cut their way out of it by cutting programs, cutting staff, and so on. And we already talked earlier about um, the level of burnout that could very well happen. And that's worrisome. So our colleges are going to be less attractive if there are fewer good programs, if there's less support. And so we're really going to, I, I worry, worry, I might be surprised, um, that we'll get into a downward spiral of decline. And as a consequence of that, many of the people I'm talking with are thinking that there will be additional mergers of smaller colleges, especially, that there will be um, consolidation um, or you know just closing of some colleges because they're not gonna figure out how to make it work. I think it's going to need a very entrepreneurial group, not just a president to make the colleges um, successful. 
if the colleges are in this dramatic cutting mode, as soon as they can get out, your good people will be leaving, which makes their decline even more likely. The people with options will leave, the people without options will stay. And that's the worst situation. So that's what I fear will happen. And I fear that some may be hoping that someday soon, the states are gonna cough up more money for our colleges. I don't see that immediately. Um, you know, it might happen in the future, and I'm more hopeful today than I was maybe um, a few months ago, but I don't, I don't see that happening. And so we're going to have to figure out different ways and new business models. So what would I like to see? What I'd like to see them do is I think that our entire design is wrong. And I am reminded of the story of the animal school. You probably know that fable. And if you don't, I'm gonna quote just one part of it. And basically it's a school designed for animals and a variety of animal types, but the curriculum's the same and the pedagogy is the same for all the animals. So here's just one small portion of it. The duck was excellent in swimming. In fact, better than the instructor, but he made only passing grades in flying and was poor in running. Since he was slow in running, he had to stay after school and also drop swimming in order to practice running. This was kept up until his webbed feet were badly worn and he was only average in swimming. But average was acceptable in school. So nobody worried about that except the duck. And that's just one segment. Uh, you can do a search online and get to the animal fable. I've referred to it many times over the years. I think we have a fundamentally um, really irresponsible curriculum design when every course takes the same amount of time for the same number of weeks for every student, regardless of their abilities, backgrounds, and more. And so I think that competency-based education, among other things, is one of the solutions to that problem. I've always been an advocate. The Higher Learning Commission as one entity, I'm presuming they all do, will accept competency-based programming versus seat-based time. And yet it's really a small, small, small proportion of schools that are doing it. And it's primarily the private institutions. For example, Capella is very big in this area. So I think we have to look at competency-based education. And then I think we can make education more efficient because there are many subjects where our students could complete faster. And I do think that we will be moving toward the more economical degrees. And you've probably heard about the $10,000 baccalaureate and so on. I think we are headed in that direction um, because the current model is not sustainable. I think we need very different staffing patterns and included among those things is the unbundling of the faculty role. Not everyone is equally good at technology teaching. Not everyone is equally competent in their disciplines. I think we can restructure the whole model of how we staff our colleges and have it be more effective. I think that um, colleges need to start investing resources in the few key directions where they can be really good. I also think that boards need to become more actively involved and in asking good questions, not meddling in the work of the college, but holding people accountable and setting high expectations and then supporting their leaders who are going to be challenged to lead these changes. So, um, Finally, I think is we need to be developing leaders internally. This is everyone's work for these colleges to be not only sustainable, but um, highly proficient for the future because the times are very, very challenging and it takes everybody being on board and we need to do a lot of professional development in lots of different areas to make sure our people are the best talents because it, I actually have another saying that I sometimes use, and I'm sure I stole it somewhere, but it's um, that the organization that develops the most people wins. And I strongly believe that at every level, the best custodians, the best cafeteria workers, the best teachers, the best leaders, the best program coordinators, you've got to invest in their development. And it doesn't have to be all that costly. That's a good so point. those are my thoughts. 
You know, you mentioned some authors uh, a little bit ago. Do you have a favorite book on leadership that you think community college presidents should read? Well, I actually thought about that in my very first thought, but I, I am going to give you one, um, is there are lots of great authors. And I, I kind of morph around and one that probably they have already read um, that I rely on a lot and use in our leadership course is the authors are um, Jim Cousy's and Barry Posner. And they are the authors of the Leadership Challenge. We're presently using their more recent book, which is called Higher Education Leadership. And I want to share what their philosophies are. They're just really simple. But if you did this, you could be a great leader. Model the way, inspire a shared vision, challenge the process, enable others to act, and encourage the heart. Leaders who consistently practice those things. And by the way, these authors, part of why I really like them is they've done hundreds of thousands of interviews and surveys. They have research that supports the more you do these things, the better the performance of the organization, clear and simple. Whereas many of the authors don't have that background of research to support their ideas. But other authors I I admire and um, use a lot of their work, Pamela Eddy, And what I especially like about her work, and she has um, one called something like multi-dimensional framework for higher education leadership, or that's not the exact title, but she is one who does address issues of equity. Mm. And um, especially gender, but also racial. And so I really like her work. And she has a book in 2020 that I haven't yet read, but anticipate going to. And then old favorites that I go back to and have really influenced my thinking for a long time. Pierre Vail, um, his book called Learning as a Way of Being is one. I also, from my business teaching days, which I did before I was teaching doctoral students in education, um, I'm a big fan of Rosabeth Moss Cantor, who wrote The Change Masters, That one's still on my shelf. I don't even know the date, but it's early 80s. It's still reliable. She also taught um, or wrote the one, um, what's the exact title here? Something about, uh, oh, When Giants Learn to Dance. And she also wrote The Challenge of Organizational Change. She's a Harvard Business School distinguished professor, very prolific and very much... um, a champion of change literature from way back, but it's also really relevant. So those are some of the ones, but I would also get outside. And I will tell you that two of the books, and and I know that the next question will lead into this, that I've read in recent months that have really changed how I'm thinking about my work. One is the book Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. It's a troubling read, but it's an important read about us as a nation and how we've treated our citizens. And so I think that's a must read and it's not a leadership book, but uh, any leader who reads it ought to be compelled to act differently. And then the other one that's really quite related to that is one that's getting a lot of press right now, um, Ibram Kendi, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And I think it also has great implications for leaders. So those are some of them. And then I'm going to close this one with, I really hope that the most important book that people will read is one that our program, DCCL, has coming out in June, uh, we think. And it's called Enhancing Performance, a Best Practices Guide for Innovations in Community Colleges. And that's being published in uh, concert with the American Association of Community Colleges and Roman and Littlefield. So we're pretty excited about that book coming out. And it's a series of essays by our students and our faculty. Congratulations on that. That's, I'll, yeah. I'll look for that. Uh, yeah, we're excited. So I know as, uh, as we get ready to start closing, and I asked you if there was anything else you would want to talk about today, you mentioned that you would like to talk about equity. So what actions should academic leaders take to advance equity on their campus? Well, that one has really hit all of us, I think, in the last year um, in troubling ways. And uh, my recognition of my need to change really came when I was teaching a leadership course. And it happened to be at the time of the George Floyd incident. And um, I happened to be teaching a class um, that was majority minority. 
And we're proud that our program does in recent years attract a majority of uh, students of Hispanic and African-American heritage. And so we're excited about that because we need more of them leading our colleges. So they, we knew that our response was insufficient. And so I determined that it wouldn't be insufficient the next time. I was gonna know more and do more. And that's what caused me to begin reading some things. And I am changing a lot of what we're doing in the class. We have a section called Leader, Leading for Equity in our class now. We have our students develop plans. And so here are some of the things that I think we have to do. The very first thing that every leader in every college needs to do is to become well-informed. And that means you need to read some things. You need to talk to people and you need to talk particularly to, to our students of color. And you need to understand their history because white privilege is a real thing. I happen to be a white woman. I happen to have enjoyed white privilege because of that fact. And um, we just need to own that. And then we need to act on that because the path I had, I was a woman, so I was discriminated lots against in lots of different ways over many years because I was an early career professional as a woman. But, um, we just need to own what our privilege has been and use that privilege in constructive ways to help those who have been less privileged. So my first thing is you need to learn a lot. You need to understand how people have been treated. You need to understand how many of our uh, fellow citizens come from heritage of slavery. You need to understand how they were precluded from participating in higher education, which is a part of why I am so proud about what Ferris did back in the early 1900s. You need to understand about how they were even precluded from voting um, for many, many years. I mean, there are just so many things that I think most of white America, including I, don't sufficiently appreciate about the black or Hispanic or others experience. And then the next thing is, I think we need to commit to action. And so one of the actions I'm committing to is a, that's a central part of our leadership course right now, because it is central to the success of our nation that we embrace all of its people and enable and empower all of our people. And we in education, I think hold the greatest obligation of all. And I'm disappointed that I personally did not do more. I did not know until I read um, Kendi's book um, that I could be classified as a non-racist and I believe I am that. But I wasn't an anti-racist, but I'm becoming one, which says I'm gonna act out toward elimination of racism. And I have an obligation with the position I have to do that. We need to understand the experience of our students. I do remember at Ferris, um, now they're a lot better at this now, but I remember I was the first in my associate provost role to begin to disaggregate the data to see how do the black students do in comparison to the white students or the green students or the purple students. Uh, we had not looked at that data before. We need to look at it and we need to make sure that the performance outcomes are the same. And going back to my animal school example, The curriculum and the pedagogy have to be different for different students with different experiences. And we have an obligation to do that in higher education. And among the things I would also advise, and this will be the last thing, is I would advise that um, they get some benchmark data, find out what the climate is on their campus find out what the experiences of the students are because it's a pretty sad thing when you hear the stories that we hear from some of our students in some of our best schools. And I'm, I'm grateful that many have now taken the courage, made the courage to speak out about their experience. And now we, the leaders in higher education have an obligation to respond to those stories. So that's the commitment that I'm trying to make and that I am going to encourage every one of our DCCL students to do. And if they do this, and I know they share the same value, if they do this, America's colleges will be transformed and therefore America's communities will be transformed. 
Well, I feel like I've learned so much today. I, I would love to come and sit in your classroom, to say the least. I think <laughs> it'd be very exciting to hear uh, you uh, teaching your class right now. Um, so with that, uh, I'd like to thank you for being a guest on the podcast today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, thank you very much. It has been a real treat for me. And it's always good to take that time to reflect about where are we? Where are we going next? Well, that ends today's show. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode. And make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.